What if I told you that your store was dumb? All right, let me rephrase that. What if I told you that your store could be a little smarter? I'm talking about Bold's new app, The Brain. In the brief period, it's been live. It's been making a massive amount of money for stores. So The Brain is this app that uses machine learning to make your store smarter. And one of the ways it works today is by displaying recommended products on your store beside any other product. Not just the dumb, these things are in a collection together, but actual recommendations based on purchase data. It's probably already the best recommended products app for Shopify, and they're just getting started. So my favorite feature actually has nothing to do with, with that. It's their integration with their other apps, and specifically their product upsell app. So if you have both, it makes your upsell offers smart. So you've got product upsell installed, you install Bold Brain, and now imagine this. Upsell offers just create themselves, but not just automatically get created. They get better than you could ever create them yourself because they're based on this machine learning data. The results from the early adopters are in two, and some stores are seeing more conversions in a month than they used to see in an entire year. Now here they've got a couple other integrations coming down the pipe too. It integrates with Recurring Orders app and the Loyalties app. So you should check it out now. I guarantee that machine learning and e-commerce is going to be huge, and the stores that adopt it now will have the advantage. Bold's Brain app is simply the easiest way to do that. It's free. You can install it right now by going to brain.boldapps.net. That's brain.boldapps.net. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You already know the benefits of SEO. The higher you rank in search, the more visitors you get, and more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do it? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines more easily and it's trusted by thousands of store owners. No surprise there, it's equal parts power, innovation, and ease of use. Think of SEO Manager as your optimization toolbox. Here's some examples. It can scan your site for issues, offer keyword suggestions, add structured data support, analyze missing pages and redirects, and even integrate with Kit, plus a ton more tools to help you be easily found in Google searches. Best of all, it's easy to get started. You can get started in minutes and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Seriously, I have met them. They are the best. And as a special offer to you, you can get 10% off SEO Manager forever when you sign up at seomanager.com unofficial. That's seomanager.com unofficial. Hello and welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster, recording from EtherCycle HQ in Skokie, Illinois, where it is decent weather. I don't know, I just, I've got this big window next to my desk, so I always give you guys an update on the weather that's like completely useless for you. I, I don't know why I do it. Anyway, I have uh, a couple who runs a Shopify store that I would love to introduce you to, Matt Snow and Meredith Aaron, a creative husband and wife team behind Boardwalk which you may have seen because, A, they sell phenomenal-looking T-shirts, number one, and number two, they have a podcast that has been making the rounds. These artists turn e-commerce professionals, produce clever, original graphic goods, apparel, including apparel, accessories, and decor. They're known for their dark humor and sharp wit. I like that. Meredith and Matt have created a corner of the internet where few fellow misanthropes could laugh at the world and themselves. 
You know, guys, I just saw an article this morning that maybe it was yesterday. Anyway, I saw an article recently that uh, dark humor requires more intelligence to process. Uh, <laughs> maybe you're just too smart for your own good. That's what's going on. That is definitely a possibility. I don't know. Some days we don't feel that smart. Yeah. I think we should all embrace that. Like, I recently <laughs> started embracing that, hey, it was uh, Nick DiSabato, um who wrote Value-Based Design and a bunch of great books. He told me, he goes, listen, e-commerce has only been around, it's, it's not been around that long, and it's only been it's in a heyday for like nine, ten years. None of us really know what we're doing, do we? I said, I guess you're right. And like, once you embrace that, it feels great. Yeah, that is 100% accurate. I mean, I, we were just talking about this last night, how like it can be difficult sometimes to embrace the wins because they aren't, for I think most e-commerce entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, there aren't like huge, like, me- like mega windfalls where you're like, you know, taking your company public and all of a sudden you're like an overnight billionaire. Most of us are just in the business of trying really hard to identify the small incremental wins and revel in them for like a split second before you get back to the grind of just like, you know, small incremental growth on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's like trying to lose weight if you've got like a ton of weight to lose. It's like every day you look in the mirror and it looks the same to you and you step on the scale and you're like, I've been starving all week and I lost half a pound. And then, you know, a few months later, like your clothes don't fit anymore because you've lost some weight. And then you're like, oh, I guess, I, you know, six months ago, things were different. But on a day-to-day basis, it just feels like such a slog. And then there's the days when you step on the scale and you're a pound heavier and you're like, what is happening? Yeah, it makes uh, it makes reveling in that stuff kind of anticlimactic when it does actually start bearing fruit. It's, yeah. It's such an important point, like to be able to put that out there and recognize that I can only imagine so many people are nodding along with it because you don't. It's very rare that you have those like overnight successes um, or like just sudden windfalls. It really is much more, it's much less like the lotto and a lot more like stacking the bricks where it's just like, all right, you got, you're holding, like hold one brick in your hand. That's a piece of a house that had to get laid one piece at a time. It just did not show up overnight. For sure. And I think that's why it's so galling to both Meredith and myself. And I know from, interactions with other e-commerce professionals like when you see this proliferation of like you know make make millions passively from your house selling on amazon Uh kind of you know ebooks and stuff like that and it's just i mean you heard meredith mention that uh a couple a few weeks ago on the uh e-commerce influence podcast like it's just snake it's just snake oil and it's really unfortunate because i think that um it it really under it devalues what those of us that are really trying to build an actual business do. Um, and it also sells false hope to these people that, you know, buy into this. But anyway, that's another, that's a whole other uh, ball of wax. Yeah. If you want to hear about like the reality of what's involved with growing your e-commerce business from nothing to a seven figure store, like we can talk about that, but we're never going to tell people it's easy and anyone can do it. And it's this like quick process and you'll have loads of free time and <laughs> loads of play. That's not how it works at all. No, we're not those people that are going to tell anyone that. So well, let's back up on the topic of legitimate businesses. What is your business? Tell me about it. Um, so our website is uh, boardwalk. Um, if is spelled B-O-R-E-D. So if you go to boardwalktshirts.com, like I'm bored, you can check out all of our products. Um, and I kind of regret the name now, but you know, what can you do? I don't have a time machine and we've had it for a while now. So I feel like I can't redo it. What, but what do you regret we, about it? 
Well, here's what happened. We had another brand when we first started. And when we first started, uh, selling stuff online was more of a hobby for us. Matt and I both had full-time day jobs doing something else. I worked in tech and Matt is a graphic designer. And we started our first brand as a hobby. And it was much more high-minded and a lot artsier than Boardwalk, although now Boardwalk has kind of come around that way. But at the time, Ex-Boyfriend, our first brand was very artsy. And we quit our day jobs wanting to grow Ex-Boyfriend. And it just wasn't like, didn't have the mass market appeal it needed to have to really make a lot of money. And we also didn't know what we were doing as marketers. Exactly. (laughs) And so we were were frustrated and we started this second store called Boardwalk just to like sell things and keep our production equipment busy. Because the other problem we had is we couldn't find a print shop that cared about print quality as much as we do. So we decided to do our own printing. And so we had production equipment, not enough order volume to keep it busy full time. So we started the second store, Boardwalk. And the name of it was so flippant at the time. I was just like, let's take a walk on the boring side. Let's create stuff that's boring that people want to buy. And then we proceeded to like design stuff that we thought was boring that um, sold really well for us. And we've since like found this, I know, and we've since found this happy medium with Boardwalk where we're doing stuff that we think is commercially appealing, but is still like somewhat our personal taste too. Like we're kind of trying to find that happy middle ground between not being too self-indulgent, but also not doing things that hurt our soul. So um, that's where we are with it now. But anyway, that's the sort of evolution of Boardwalk and its silly name. But yeah, we sell these graphic tees and now we have other products too. We have some accessories and uh, art prints and things like that. Cool. Yeah, looking at it, there's some some great stuff in here. I love anything that's like 80s rad. Some really fun stuff. I absolutely uh, check it out. BoardwalkT-shirts.com. And of course, I'll link to it in the show notes. So how long ago was that, that this started? So we, this all kind of came together around, I mean, Ex-Boyfriend started a few years before that. But I guess this all came together around like summer 2013 is when we we had been running Ex-Boyfriend for a little bit before that, but as a hobby. Um, and then we quit our jobs to work on it full time, found we were having too many production problems, moved to Southern California in spring of 2013, and then um, started Boardwalk in winter of 2014. And what you had uh, your previous project, Ex-Boyfriend, was mm-hmm. like started as a side hustle. You said, all right, let's go full time with this. And then when mm-hmm. it, it wasn't going as you planned, then you started Boardwalk as a second side hustle, a side hustle to what was originally a side hustle, right? Was there a conversation around like, okay, we're going to distract from our full time here or let's just do this? Uh, like, And then when did you know was the it was time to make the full pivot? Well, board, uh, ex-boyfriend was a side hustle that became a full-time thing while we were still based in Baltimore. And then at the time... A very different business model from where we're at now. Um, you know, about a third of our revenue was from online sales, either through ex-boyfriend's own website or its Etsy store, uh, and then a third of it was from selling wholesale, either at like traditional like wholesale trade shows or just you know reaching out to people like doing cold calls. And then another third was live events, comic book conventions, craft fairs, street festivals, that kind of thing, um, and when we finally realized what happened was we realized that we were kind of sick of doing the show circuit on the East coast because, you know, a lot of those are in like the fall and the winter and the weather's terrible. And, um, you know, it can be really, uh, I guess not great for the ego when you're sitting there and selling a lot of stuff, but then you see some dad walk by in, I'm going to be really pointed about this because this actually happened in an Eagles Jersey with his son, and then you overhear him walk away from your booth, even though you've had a really good sales day telling his kid, this is what happens when you don't stay in school. 
<laughs> just fun. I mean, Matt and I are both God. college graduates and had pretty well-paying professional jobs and chose to pivot to work for ourselves and are now making a perfectly comfortable living doing this too. But I think people have this perception that if you do something creative, you don't make any money at it. And we still run into this. Matt and I were just at a party last past weekend and someone asked me what we do and I explained it and he goes, well, isn't that really competitive? It's kind of this like backhanded way of saying like, we well, can't possibly ma- be making money at that. I don't know how to respond to that without also sounding like a jerk. So I just kind of don't engage with that commentary, but these people don't know our lives. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we, and that attitude is a lot more pervasive outside of Southern California, because at least here it's more common, like, because it's like kind of an entertainment industry hub for most people to work in entertainment and have a creative job but they still have a side hustle to do stuff that's more creatively fulfilling or whatever. Um, so, and you know, we did some research and at the time we still thought wholesale and doing like large production runs and selling to stores and larger, like online, you know, marketplaces like think geek and stuff like that was going to be continue to be a big part of our business. So, um, you know, the, the, print on demand service that we had been using who did do a really great job in terms of like quality control and sending out a good product and turning things around fast. They hadn't ever figured out how to make that business profitable. And so they, they told us after we had already gotten the ball rolling to move to Southern California, that they were folding. Oh, geez. So, so we got here and we kind of scrambled to find a replacement POD and, um, that didn't last uh, very long. They just were taking forever to ship stuff out. They were sending out like subpar products. And so at that point we decided to bite the bullet, invest in our own production equipment. And um, so that's what we were doing. And then before we even thought to do boardwalk, our first impulse to try and keep the uh, machines running full time was to create our own POD service and just like basically reach out to other creatives that had really cool designs and art, but they were mostly selling like posters and prints and other things, but they weren't doing t-shirts. Um, and so we created this POD and started basically pitching it to other sellers like on Etsy or, you know, other marketplaces that didn't really focus on teas. And we were like, have you ever thought about selling your stuff on teas? Um, and, it was just such a slog to try and get people to like buy in. I think a lot of people thought it was like too good to be true because we were like, we're fronting the cost on the blanks, the ink, the production, the postage. And then we're going to invoice you the, you know, a week after stuff ships. So that way you're all, we're already going to have money from your sales. But a lot of people I don't think really um, trusted (laughs) that that was an actual viable business model. And so getting, people onboarded as clients was really difficult. And so eventually after a couple of months of just banging our head against that wall, Meredith was like, well, screw it. Let's just create our own ideal client. And that was what the genesis of Boardwalk was. And we decided to go really long tail, just throw as many different designs up as possible, but also be really focused on trying to identify current trends and emulate those uh, in terms of like the, themes and colors and typography, but doing our own thing, just, you know, like basically the best version of what's ever trending right now was our goal with that. And of course it quickly blew up and took off and started out selling ex-boyfriend within like a few weeks and started getting a bunch of orders. So it kind of dragged us along with it and made it uh, our full-time focus. Part of what allowed that to happen though, and I don't know, maybe I'm 
giving away too much uh, milk or too much of the cow here. But we did start Boardwalk with a significantly lower price point than what we were retailing our our ex-boyfriend stuff for. And that was mostly just to get some early transactional velocity on Etsy because we only listed it on Etsy for like the first year that it was around. Um, And we knew that since we had the means of production in-house, we had better margins and could you know, afford to retail stuff for significantly less than a lot of our competition on Etsy. And then as our, you know, transactional velocity increased, we were able to then incrementally increase the retail price just to slow things down to to like a manageable level, but also to improve our margins. So that was another thing that I think helped get it out of the gate relatively quickly. So you started with Initially, it's intentionally low prices to acquire customers to get word of mouth and social proof and um, repeat purchases. Yeah, and I think that that is actually a better way to go about it than just coming out of the gate with these artificially, um, you know, deflated retail prices where you're going to like say that you're selling something regularly for $35 or $40 and then discount it like 60% or something like that because you're going to be training customers to expect deep discounting rather than just starting low and then incrementally increasing slowly over time. Um, I just think that that's a better way to go about doing it. And that way you're going to be attracting over time a better quality of customer because they're not going to be trained from the outset to expect deep discounts all the time. Okay. Uh, so when you launched it, it didn't, it wasn't like 35, like was 35 now 15 you had, nope. you just listed it for the price is the price, but it was, mm-hmm. it was, I think that started at like, yeah, like 12 90 or something really ridiculous, <laughs> which we, we still make money at because we own the production equipment. So a lot of the online t-shirt sellers that you see now, very few of them own their production equipment, so they don't have very good margins. Um, and so their prices seem high to the consumer. Um, but part of the reason for that is that they're not making a lot of money on those because they don't own that production equipment and the companies that are doing the production are charging them quite a bit, you know, marking up the price quite a bit to print and ship the shirts, reasonably so, because it is a lot of work. But um, that's part of where you see a lot of the like, proliferation of all these fly by night t shirt sites selling like $30 t shirts. Yeah, it's so easy to do it now. It's easy to set it up. It's hard to actually turn it into a business. It's hard. Yeah, it's certainly it's hard to, to market it. It's hard to get it off the ground. What was the thing that that got you traction, you know, years ago when you started it? I mean, when we first started, we, again, like Matt and I, my background is tech, Matt's background is graphic design. We're more creative and technical people than we are marketing people. So for the first two years of Boardwalk's life, um, it just benefited from being on Etsy and then Amazon for a while too. It was on Amazon for about a year. Um, and then we decided to leave Amazon because we were having too many problems with ASIN hijacking. And we just decided that that wasn't for us. So we tell pulled me, all well, our stuff off and left. For people who don't know, tell us what ASIN hijacking is. So Amazon, I'm just going to be upfront. I hate Amazon. I think that website is complete dumpster fire. I don't sell there. I don't shop there. I wish nothing but the worst for them. Good but for you. We, um, when we first started selling on Amazon, Amazon was actually vetting who is allowed to sell in the clothing category. So you had to be invited and approved. You couldn't just set up a store on Amazon and sell clothing. They were also limiting it to U.S. sellers, US sellers at the time. Um, and so we were on Amazon for about a year and it, grew relatively quickly to be a huge chunk of our revenue. But um, by the end of that first year, they made the decision to open up the clothing category to overseas sellers. And within like two or three months, our market share on there had been cut in half um, just because uh, what was happening is people overseas, mostly in China and Hong Kong were uh, seeing which of our, you know, designs were selling well because that information is 
pretty easily accessible on Amazon. They make it very easy for people to determine like what's selling well. And then they would just basically click a radio button that says, oh, I sell that same thing too. And then they would undercut us on price to win the buy box. And it was just, you know, really causing us to lose a ton of sales. And I spent about six weeks trying to go through Amazon's, you know, process in terms of, you know, submitting DMCA requests and all this other stuff. Uh, we were already a registered brand, but that was essentially meaningless <laughs> as far as the good it, that it would do us. Um, and after about six weeks of that, we finally were just like, that's it. We're done with Amazon. And so we went nuclear with our listings. We basically just replaced all of the product images and all of the product copy just so that at least then it, they wouldn't be able to continue making money off of our listings and then just um, deleted, everything. deleted everything. So anything that would have been like left cash would have had like a placeholder image with no product photo. And then everything on top of that was deleted. So there was basically nothing of value when we left. But the problem with uh, your product pages being hijacked is multifold. Not only do you lose the sales on your own products because someone else is selling a fake of your product, but then when the negative reviews start rolling in, those get attributed to your product. Oh, so people geez. are selling like a terrible looking fake version of your product someone's getting it, thinks it's your brand's product, leaves a negative review, and then that re reflects on your brand. And so Matt and I were just like, we're not having this. And even though at one point, Amazon was like 40% of our gross online sales, we're like, I don't care, we'll figure something else out. Um, and so we just pulled everything off. And we spent the next that was like, early, June no, 20, mid 2016, yeah. mid 2016. And we spent like the next year just figuring it out because we weren't going to live with Amazon screwing with our business. And we didn't quit working for other people to work for Amazon. So we figured it out. And what, uh, as you left Amazon, what was the, the thing that gave you the confidence that like, okay, the online store can do as well or better? <sighs> um, well, we had slowly seen our online sales continue to grow both not, uh, on Etsy and also on our website because it was um, early 2016, like right, probably like three months before we made the decision to leave Amazon that we launched our Shopify store. And initially we kind of had the same attitude towards that as we did towards the marketplace sites. Let's just put a bunch of stuff up there and people will find it and then they'll buy it, which did happen. It's just that, especially if you're not using a marketplace, it takes a long time to build up any kind of authority with, you know, Google and the other major search engines. So that was a bit slow going, but you know, after we left Amazon, we tried a few different things. Like we launched another like Etsy only thing that was more like event and occasion specific things like birthday shirts for little kids and stuff like that, that you, you know, they could customize, like they could like swap in their kid's name or whatever. And um, then there was like another thing that we tried to do, which was like a line that was only geared towards uh, plus size women. Um, and that didn't do very well. Um, and then finally, we kind of saw enough of an increase going into the holiday season of 2016 that we kind of limped in there and were able to keep the lights on. And then it, at, in January of 2017, we were like, all right, we've got to get serious about driving traffic to the Shopify store. Um, because we don't, if we learned anything from the Amazon fiasco, it was, we don't want to have anyone else be, Behold, we don't want to be beholden to anyone else's marketplace or platform. So we want to have a little bit more control over our destiny in that regard. And so we were like, well, we need to get into advertising like seriously. We need to look into Facebook ads and other stuff. But before we want to do that, we wanted to kind of do what we could to get our email marketing um, program dialed in. And so 
I went to uh, one of Austin's emails, email intensives and got going with Clavio. And then once we went live with that, we reached out to an agency to start doing Facebook ads. And we did that with an agency for about a six, for about six months. And then we ended up hiring Foxwell to do some one-on-one training with me. And we've been handling all of our uh, Facebook advertising and now Instagram advertising in-house since I want to say like November of 2017. So yeah. uh, unpacking that a little bit, when you say Austin and Foxwell, you're talking about uh, Austin Browner, who does uh, a lot of work with uh, lifecycle email, Clavio mar- uh, email marketing, and who's been a, a repeat guest on the show. And then uh, Andrew Foxwell is Foxwell from Foxwell Digital. Um, and both of them co-host a podcast. Uh, and Andrew uh, was just on the show not that long ago. I don't want to make any of this sound like it was easy because I know we're kind of glossing over the details, but I want to be truthful with people about like how this was possible because I don't, I hate the notion that anyone can do what we do. Like, yeah, I guess in theory, maybe, but it's super difficult. And part of what enabled us to do the stuff that we did is one, I worked in tech for 15 years before we started doing this. So I had an ample amount of savings. So we had a huge financial safety net for those years when we weren't making any money from having done something else first and saved a lot of money. Also, Matt and I don't really have any other outside responsibilities other than this. We don't have kids. We don't have anybody else that we have to take care of. So Matt and I can and often did work like 80 hour weeks to just like make it happen and just have the personality type of throw any challenge at us and we will figure it out no matter what. Like Matt and I are not the kind of people to say like, this is too hard. This is too complicated. I can't do it. So I don't want to give people the impression that like this was somehow easy for us. It was a painful, slow, difficult climb. And I want to be upfront about like, what enabled us to even be able to do any of that? Because it's not as simple as like, oh, just set up an online store and the orders roll in. That is not how it works. No, yeah. no. I always tell new merchants like, uh, okay, the easy part is going to be building the store. The hard part is getting the first 100 orders. And if you do that, okay, there's there's a market and you can start scaling it. But it's that like in between that's between we launched to crickets and oh, we've got you know we're seeing you know, a couple sales every day. That oh, that climb is is the worst. Yeah, we had uh, three plus years of pre-profit, like either losing money or just barely breaking even working 80 hours a week. But yeah, to, to your point about like getting from zero to the first hundred orders, that doesn't seem like much, but that is a big deal. And actually a friend of ours that also um, is an entrepreneur, she used to say that whenever friends of hers would say, oh, I want to start, I want to start a business. I want to start a website selling stuff. She always would tell them, let me know when you sold, when you reach your first hundred sales and I will take you out to dinner. And no one ever, ever, ever ended up getting that free meal. It's a lot of work. I mean, the, the democrat, democratization of tools so that like they're, it is more accessible um, to do this than ever. And there's so much information out there if you want to research it. Has, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, anybody could do this now. But also, anybody could do this now. Like, it, it makes it very easy to to try and fail is the would be like the the opti- the pessimistic way of looking at I, I think it's realistic tools. yeah it's realistic yeah just be you know eyes open with your expectations going into it if you're thinking like overnight success and easy millions it's it's not the case it's going to be hard work um and a lot of hustle and grind and i mean yeah and there are other you know factors that will play into that i mean the vertical that we're in has become super saturated. There were not nearly as many, you know, alternatives to what we do online we in 2009 when we started, uh, when, when we first went live with ex-boyfriend's uh, website relative to now. And um, 
you know, I think if someone has like a really like, you know, if someone does, you know, build a better mousetrap or at least whatever it is that they're trying to do, there's probably a little a better chance if they have their their marketing and their messaging aligned properly with a really great product, they could really blow up a lot faster. Um, so, you know, everyone's mileage is going to vary, but generally speaking, it's best to be really conservative with your expectations um, and just know that there's going to be a lot of work going into it. And even those folks that have built a better mousetrap, you know, a lot of them are still you know, facing the same challenges that we do, even if the, you know, their gross revenue numbers might be in the seven or eight figures, you know, they might have such razor thin margins that they're barely making any money. So that's another important consideration for people to like, think about. So no, all, all absolutely right. Um, and good advice. Hold up. We'll hear more after this quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Simpler, a new way to staff 24 seven sales and customer service on your Shopify store. It works with your existing email and chat tools, so setup is quick and easy. Simpler provides on-demand, US-based customer service specialists to answer your customers' most common questions. Close more sales with Simpler by staffing your email and live chat with 24-7 Simpler specialists. Find out more at simpler.ai. That's S-I-M-P-L-R dot A-I. And now, back to the show. Hit me. As you have grown your business... You have one of your your atypical marketing strategies has been starting a podcast. Tell me about it. Um, well, one thing um, that I think is different about the way we think about our product line versus maybe other people that appear to be in our vertical, we don't think of ourselves as people that sell T-shirts. We think of people that of ourselves as people that sell art that happens to be on a shirt, which is a different thing than just selling shirts. Um, and so we try and be as much of a content business as possible, whether it's the products themselves are content, the blog, the social media, all of it. And the podcast is another way for us to create content for um, the people that follow us. And it's another thing to engage with and follow along with and be entertained by because our goal is you know, to keep our fans entertained. You've got a, a larger content marketing vision here that is, it, it's a very customer centric. First, be of value. Like, even if what you're, even if you're giving something away, it should be something of value. Like, even with our like campaign emails, I try to be as entertaining as possible and as colloquial as possible. And it is based on because I'm on lots of email lists uh, as a, as a result of this, and most people, it's just like a hero image. Maybe there's some movement in terms of like it being like an animated GIF. And then some links that tell people to buy stuff or, and like maybe one or two lines explaining, we've got these new things. Don't they look great? (laughs) And then it's just like a buy now button. And that, I I know I would never really, I I mean, yeah, I'm as, I'm as price sensitive as the next person. So if there's a crazy deep discount and it's something I either really, really need or really, really want, sure, I might click through on that stuff. But by and large, I would much rather, I'd be more inclined to at least bother opening an email if I knew that the people behind the email made an effort every single week or every single email to get a chuckle out of me at the very least. Yeah, that's always our goal. I mean, yeah, sure, buy stuff, but our emails pretty much never are just here, buy stuff, unless, you know, like a card abandoned email or something. But if it's like a campaign email, buy stuff is always the second message. The first message is always something else. Like, come listen to this interview on our podcast. Check out this Q&A with one of our customers. Would you like to be featured next? It's always something more content driven. And, you know, here's some things you didn't know about April 1st, that kind of stuff. I think the podcast is something that creates more value for everybody involved. Um, I mean, the people on the podcast, but also all the people that are going to listen to the podcast, because we're trying to put out an entertaining podcast. 
Um, so I think it's just a much better way of collabing, as, as they like to say, than just here's some cash and merch post on Instagram. I hate that, Matt, and I do not do that. Uh, in many ways, it sounds like your podcast is your answer to influencer, in, the problems with influencer marketing. I, I mean, that's, so. our, that's our hope, for sure. I mean, it's it, it, like most current forms of marketing, I think that it's a slow and steady wins the race kind of deal. Um, oh, you know, sure. we, we're not, you know, we're not even at your level yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, I look at our stats and we pick up like, you know, 50 to 100 new listeners every couple of weeks. And, I, you know, part of that is just us getting better at recording, using better equipment, and also, you know, making sure that when we do invite guests on, they're folks that are going to be engaging and interesting to our listeners, and also that are going to have, their their fans or their followers are going to have affinities that align or, or overlap pretty well with our own. Um, so, you know, I, I, but I do think that ours being a customer facing one, uh, is something that's rare. I think that there, that, that is going to be changing in the next, like probably 12 to 24 months. I think that there are going to be more and more brands that start doing that, but we figured, you know, we're, we're showing a little bit late to the podcasting game as, uh, as far as a business goes, but by being customer facing, as opposed to talking about the nuts and bolts of our business, um, gives a a bit of a unique perspective. So yeah. with your podcast, that I think that's like the the mindset shift shift that's tough for people. Like you sell t-shirts and you've got a podcast for those customers. How do you begin to bridge the gap between like uh between content that you could create for the podcast and content that will be interesting to your customers? Like I wouldn't even know where to begin that's the thing. We don't sell t-shirts. We kind of sell like a, a culture and a lifestyle and art, which is a whole other thing. And so our brand is our, our brand and our podcast are more centered around that. Um, Matt and I talk about, you know, struggles with mental health. We talk about politics. We talk about, um, okay. you know, existentialism. We talk about these things in our art, but we also talk about these things on our podcast. So Matt and I would never book like a bikini model on Instagram, no matter how many followers she has, because that's not our culture. But we have booked uh, this, you know, openly bisexual atheist single mom who ran for office in Nebraska and is now a Nebraska state senator. We'll book special effects artists who work in Hollywood because they work in the arts. Um We'll book a guy who decided to use Reddit to drive traffic to his dating profile because that's an interesting story. So, like, we book people that are interesting, that we find interesting, and that we think our customers will find interesting. And I think that's what all of those things share. What we talk about on the podcast is a glimpse into what informs the products that we sell. And if people like the products that we sell, they'll probably like the podcast, too, because it comes from, uh, at least intellectually, a similar ethos ethos and mindset to what attracted them to our brand in the first place so i i think it could, what i'm wondering is is there a, a chicken and egg pro, chicken and egg problem here where the content works so you're creating content that interests you and so the like there's a commonality between the um the products the content the art the podcast and so people it either works or doesn't work for someone Rather than I think what I was thinking previously was like, all right, you had the brand and then you uh, talk to customers, interview customers, survey customers to figure out, okay, these are topics I guess we should do. 
Well, it's more like it, it, it's driven more by sales more than anything because we can tell based on which of our designs are selling and we can use that to inform who we're going to interview on the podcast. And sometimes we don't have a guest every single week. Like right. this week's podcast is just Meredith and I bantering and riffing about whatever's getting our goat this week. Um, but like, so one of our ad designs or one of our recent designs uh, is for uh, this thing called, that we made up called the psychedelic travel bureau, uh, take a trip unlike any other. And it's got like little mushrooms and flowers and stuff like that. And so one of the people that ended up buying it, he tagged us on Instagram wearing his shirt. And then I reached out to him yesterday, asked him if he wanted to be featured in our, like one of our Tuesday community spotlight emails where we would do like a quick Q and a, and he said, sure. And so we sent him some questions and we got back answers. And it turns out that this dude lives in the Northwest. He sells cannabis legally. He is also in an indie punk band. And he also has a podcast with his wife where they discuss like stories of the paranormal. And like we have lots of t-shirts that are themed on monsters and psychedelics and music. And so just by virtue of all of these weird Venn diagrams overlapping and the fact that this guy likes our design and it's because we have similar thoughts on, you know, monsters and drugs. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense that we would invite him to be an interview guest on the podcast. And he so I asked him and he was like, yeah, sure. So we're going to be doing that in a few weeks. Um, and so, I don't know. I don't think that there's necessarily a chicken and egg problem. I think that this is just another way to strengthen the bond that we have with our current and, you know, future brand, uh, you know, fans. So that that way, even if they are wearing someone else's shirt on a given day or, you know, aren't scrolling through Facebook and see our funny ads with our quippy copy they can still listen to us in the car or on the train on the way to work or something like that. And it's just another way for us to just reinforce that connection. Um, because Meredith and I, we're not the only introverted snarky people in the world, but it, we're harder. <laughs> LA is a bit, very large geographical area. It's hard to meet those people. And so having all of these different touch points remotely with people that would get along really well with us in real life, I think is an important way for us to continue not just growing the brand, but also reinforcing the connections that we already have established with our current customers. Yeah, we think of ourselves and our customers as kind of part of the same tribe and similar kinds of people that have similar values and interests. And so I think that makes it easier to talk to them about things that they're interested in, because we think for the most part, they're interested in a lot of things that we're interested in. It makes life so much easier when your business is a reflection of your interests and then you share that interest with the customer. Like that's when you get into that that wonderful situation where it's like, I never worked a day in my life kind of thing. You have those moments where you're like, I get paid for this. So it's a, a very good position to be in. Looking, but if I worked at another, if I worked at another company, like if I sold like um, luggage, then I would be doing a podcast about travel and bringing in people who have popular blogs and social media accounts that talk about travel and people that work at the Travel Channel. You know, if I run a different business, I would be bringing different kinds of guests in. I would still be podcasting, but my podcast would be about something else. So I don't want to make it sound like other other brands can't do this. I think you need to pick a podcast theme that works for your brand. As a brand, who is podcasting right for? Who is it not right for? It's right for people that want to build a sustainable brand. How about that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like there are other e-commerce professionals that we know who are hilarious and they sell the most boring products. 
I think that they could still do a podcast uh, that's customer facing. And, you know, because if they spend all of their day in the trenches trying to sell microfiber towels, if Brett Haney is listening to this, <laughs> Brett is hilarious. And I would listen to a podcast of him talking about janitorial supplies because he's got the kind of personality that just lends itself to me wanting to listen to him talk. Um, and so, like, yeah, Meredith hit, hit it on the head hit on the head though like i think it is going to in the future be not a luxury or like a lark but more of a requirement as a way to continue bringing new folks into the fold through a different less conventional channel and also you know maintaining a strong connection with the you know your very best customers that will you know follow you like lemmings off the cliff because Meredith likes to say, I'm not trying to build a business. I'm trying to build a cult. And that's – it's not a bad way to look at it at all. Um, you you want to build a, a, a tribe of your best people who get you, and those are the people who are going to to champion the brand and tell others about you. And, the you know, the really ultimately they're just the people who uh, have raised their hands and identified as, as part of your tribe and are getting the absolute most value out of it. And podcast is such a great way to do it. Because realistically, they're not that tough to make. You know, you could get a $30 microphone, the software is free, the hosting is inexpensive. There's not a ton to it as far as investing in tools. But like, you don't need the the absurdly, overly complicated setup I run because I'm too fiddly. But the, and then it, it's just such a, a personal medium. And I like, I follow uh, some podcast industry stats. Like, they, they keep growing. They're not going to stop growing, to your point like more people than ever are listening to podcasts. So if you're thinking about getting into it, you may as well get into it now. Yeah. If you're one of those like black hat fly by night people, it has some like vague about page where you don't want people to have your phone number and you don't want a picture of yourself on there. And you're like kind of trying to scam people and not run real like legitimate business. Like obviously this isn't going to appeal to you. And I know there's like a million websites out there that are like that. Um, but I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to the people that want to be doing this for years and years and years and build a real business and have a real customer base that's excited to shop with them. That's who this is for. But I know that there's a whole other side to the e-commerce industry that's kind of like make as much money as quickly as possible while trying to fleece people and then, you know, skip town. And if that's your model, none of this advice is for you. Yeah. But yeah, to, to your point though, yeah, you just if you have even an inkling that you might want to start a podcast at some point, just start it. Because our first three episodes sounded really rough and i mean that was on me because i didn't really know what i was doing i was we weren't even we i didn't even have an external mic like i we were just recording into the built-in on my laptop into GarageBand. and now that we're committed to continuing to do it uh like i'm gonna be investing in some like better equipment and everything but you might as well just get started now at least to familiarize yourself with the tone that you want to strike how you want to how you want it to be structured and formatted. And I mean, even that's something that's still kind of like a moving target for us, but there's no, there's no reason to not do it now. Um, especially since most people, even if, if they do have a computer with a built-in mic, they have all of the equipment that they would really need as of right now. Absolutely. So if you had to go, if you had, had to go back in time, is there anything, any advice you would have given yourself about starting the podcast, something you would have done differently with that podcast? Starting it sooner. And maybe, and and I guess maybe, I, I if I had started it sooner, I wouldn't have started it in like late August, and therefore would have had a little bit more time before the holiday season got into high gear for us to really spend some time researching 
equipment and all that stuff. But, you know, I can't get too hung up about that stuff. Um, but, and, and as, and right now, you know, we're still very much in a growth phase, but it's a little bit more manageable because it's not peak holiday season right now. Right. Um, so that's actually stuff that I'm working on right now, like this week and next week is, you know, researching better equipment, talking to actual, you know, professionals that sell this stuff and, you know, getting a good rig set up. So we have like, you know, more consistency in terms of the audio quality, because that's the other thing your content can, your content will win out probably 75% of the time. But if you have really terrible sound quality, like really bad, people aren't going to want to listen to it no matter how much they like you and how funny they think you are. Yeah, if it sounds like crunchy and distorted, that's where you've gone too far. But initially, like, I used a $30 Samson mic and I in a room with 10-foot ceilings so it echoed unbelievably and no one ever complained about the audio quality. And, yeah. like, it, even upgrading to, like, good, cool, like, I'm in a room that's got sound treatment and a fancy mic and all that, and a sound processor, and, like, uh, occasionally someone will go, oh, your, your podcast sounds pretty good. Like, I think good good sound quality never hurts. Bad sound quality never helps. But it's nowhere near as big a deal as people think it is. Yeah. Yeah, having a podcast that is interesting to your customers is the most important part of creating a podcast for your customers. Yeah, content first. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, so, same question, a little different. If you had to go back in time to the start of Boardwalk, what advice would you give yourselves? Uh, I would have taken learning the marketing side of things more seriously from the get-go and rather than just letting the Shopify store just kind of like sit there for about a year um just picking up you know dink and dunk orders here and there um and still putting all of our focus on trying to grow our Etsy sales um I mean we weren't putting that much focus into it we were still very much of the mindset like Oh, we just need to put out, and I mean, it does help. Like, I mean, we put out new designs every single week, but, um, you know, just really, I think long-term putting the lion's share of your effort into your shop, Shopify store or, you know, whatever e-commerce platform you're using is better spent than, you know, racing to the bottom against people on marketplace sites like Amazon and Etsy and eBay and stuff like that, um, just for the long-term health of the business. Um, I just think that there are diminishing returns when you, uh, you know, put that much of your effort into, you know, basically making money for someone else. Because when you're selling through those channels primarily, even if they make up the vast majority of your sales, you're still essentially a sharecropper on someone else's land and you're still paying them for the privilege to you know sell your product to people that aren't really your customers like you can't do anything with you know any of these emails that you're acquiring through amazon and etsy sales but you can when you are driving all of your all of your paid traffic is being driven to your shopify store so i I would advise people not to sleep on that and not to like delay refocusing on that yeah, Matt and I always encourage people to make their online their own online store their priority and not get so entrenched with Amazon in particular. And we have so many disagreements with people about it. And occasionally people will come around to our way of thinking, but to our way of thinking, like having like 30%, 50%, 80% of your business coming from Amazon is like building your business on quicksand. And we would hate to, we don't want that to happen to any real business. I mean, scammers, whatever. But if you're running a legitimate business with a good product, we want your business to be sustainable just because like we root for the good guys and we don't want your business to get destroyed by Amazon. So we want you to have that 
security and stability. And so we want you to have your own online store with your own email list and your own customers so that no one can pull the rug out from under you. Yeah, I'd rather sleep at night with a six or seven figure business and then deal with you an know, eight figure business that can be shut off overnight. Yeah, I would never get I would never get sleep if that were the case. Yeah. Oh, it's when I talk to Amazon merchants who are considering like I would uh, Kurt, think about hiring you to start a Shopify store, and I say, "Oh, uh, why? What's what changed that you're concerned about this, and that you want to do this?" And the answer almost always is one of two things: we're worried that Amazon could just shut us down at any time, or we could lose that source of revenue. We've got the single point of failure, or B, like, yeah, Amazon's great, but you know, we we want to be able to own that customer experience. Yeah. I mean, I do think you can create a better customer experience in general if you have your own website because you can't invite your Amazon customers to come listen to your podcast or check out your customer spotlight emails or any of that stuff. So you can be producing the best content in the world, but if you don't have any way to share it with those customers, that doesn't help you. So you really need them on your own platform. And every interaction we've had with people like that, it's 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 essentially the same as when people are railing against paying taxes and then they're like, their house is on fire and they're like, who's paying these firefighters? Well, that's what your taxes go to. Yeah. So. Somebody's got to fix these streets. Why do I pay so much in taxes? Well, um, so you guys are great. In the show notes, I am including the link to uh, your Shopify store and your podcast. Is there anyone anywhere else people should go to learn more about you? I think that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. We're pretty open books. Uh, you know, if people, and, you know, sometimes, especially now as our profile is getting bigger, we're getting emails from other aspiring entrepreneurs and they're like, how did you do it? I'm like, how much time do you have? But, um, you know, we, if you shoot shoot us an email and you're not a jerk, I'll reply to it. Uh, and, um, you know, all of the, all of Boardwalk social media, like Meredith and I don't, you know, we, we have personal Facebook pages, but we don't have personal Instagram or, uh, Twitter or, or Twitter like or even Reddit accounts. It's, like, it's for the best. Yeah. yeah, it's all just the business, and that way it just leads to a much more authentic, I think, experience, like getting to know how we think and who we are just through the the, the lens of the business. So, uh, Matt and Meredith, you guys are fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Of course. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us. Big news from our friends at Out of the Sandbox this month. Their newest theme just launched. It's called Flux. And it's for those of us who loved all the bells and whistles and turbo, but thought, I need more of this. That's where Flex is a game changer for you. It can be configured in an endless number of ways, thanks to more layout and section options than ever, more granular control of settings, and easy addition of custom CSS through the theme editor. It's perfect for development agencies like ourselves, as well as e-commerce entrepreneurs like you looking to create a unique online store experience for your customers. Now here's the coolest part. Flex has a new Demo Shop Import feature that allows you to fast-track your shop setup based on any of 12 demo shops. You get all of the theme settings, layouts, content, and sections used in that demo shop of your choice applied automatically to your store. You can check Flex out right now at outofthesandbox.com. And if you like it, take 20% off the purchase price when you use code PODCAST20 at checkout. That's outofthesandbox.com and code PODCAST20. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.